Со двора подъезд известный под названием Черный ход В том подъезде, как в поместье, проживает черный кот Он в усы усмешк прячет, темнота ему, как щит Все коты поют и плачут Hello everybody, welcome to another edition of New Books in Russian and Eurasia Studies Part of the New Books Network I'm your host, Sean Guillory Every podcast I talk to an author about their new book on Russia or Eurasia in this episode, I spoke with Daniel Treisman about his new book, The Return, Russia's Journey from Gorbachev to Medvedev. Since the collapse of the Soviet Union, journalists, academics, and policymakers have sought to make sense of post-Soviet Russia. Is Russia an emerging or retrograde democracy? A free market or Byzantine capitalism? Adopting Western values or forever steeped in Asiatic mores? Is Russia in transition, and if so, transitioning to what? Usually, these, the answers to these questions are rooted in Russophilia or Russophobia, colored by teleological assumptions and crude stereotypes, as if to reaffirm Churchill's quip that Russia is a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside of enigma, to many, the nature of today's Russia remains elusive. The first lines of Daniel Treisman's new book, The Return, Russia's Journey from Gorbachev to Medvedev, signifies a change in tone. Whatever Russia is, Treisman asserts, one indisputable fact is clear. Quote, Russia has returned, not to the West, of which it was never truly a part, but to the world. End quote. Treisman's text is one of the most refreshing, least ideologically driven, and erudite explorations into the journey Russia has taken over the last 20 years. With each step, the reader is urged to rethink, speculate, and even reevaluate many of the myths about Russia's past, present, and future. So here is my interview with Daniel Treisman. Uh, hi, Daniel. Hi. Welcome to New Books in Russian and Eurasian Studies. Thanks for taking the time to talk about your new book, The Return, Russia's Journey from Gorbachev to Medvedev. Um, just to begin, why don't you tell us a bit about yourself and how you got interested in contemporary Russian politics? Sure. Well, uh, I'm a professor of political science at uh, UCLA, University of California, Los Angeles. Uh, this year, I'm actually on sabbatical, uh, a visiting fellow at the Institute for Human Sciences in Vienna. Uh, and uh, my background is uh, in political science, uh, specializing in Russia. Uh, I really became interested in Russia uh, when I was in graduate school uh, in uh, the mid-80s. It was uh, 1986, and uh, I was starting in the political science department and looking for an area specialization. And looking around the world in 1986, it seemed that uh, something might be about to happen in Russia. And I began learning Russian at that point. And uh, I haven't been disappointed, uh, really, from 1986 to the present. Uh, there been just an uninterrupted series of surprises, uh, even some years when the surprise was that there was no surprise. Uh, but uh, the country has remained uh, continuously interesting and challenging to understand, uh, and so I've uh, I've done my best to do so. And what brought you to write this particular book? Well, there's, there's a great tendency in academia to focus on very narrow, uh, precisely defined questions, uh, and and to uh, seek out exactly the evidence uh, that will. Uh, establish a case on those narrow questions. And uh, I uh, decided a few years ago uh, that, uh, well, I became frustrated with only doing that. And I wanted to know what I actually thought about the big questions. Uh, I went back at that point and started reading all the memoirs, uh, rereading all the, the historical material of the last of 20 years, seemed like a, a good stretch of time to try and draw some conclusions about what had been happening in Russia. And uh, I tried to, to force myself to answer uh, the big questions uh, to the extent that one could with the material available. Uh, so I ended up writing this book, uh, which, which draws some conclusions uh, based on what we know at present, or at least what I, what I think I know at present, uh, about uh, you know what has happened in Russia since 1985, uh, including why the Soviet Union disintegrated, uh, what went wrong with with Gorbachev's attempt at uh, economic and political reform, 
what explains uh, Yeltsin's various decisions. Uh, there's a chapter on the war in Chechnya uh, and uh, various other aspects of, of uh, Russia's uh, transition or Russia's experience in, in these last two decades. Mm-hmm. And you, you do challenge actually some um, you know, prevailing myths about this period too, which I really appreciate and we'll get to later on. Um, just to get into the book itself, the first few chapters deals with the political personalities of Mikhail Gorbachev, Boris Yeltsin, uh, Vladimir Putin, and Dmitry Medvedev. Um, let's begin with Gorbachev, who you call the captain. And I like the titles that you gave each one of these individuals. Um, how does the moniker of the captain uh, what is it, or what does the moniker of the captain say about Gorbachev as a politician and a reformer? Right. Well, he, this was actually an image that he used in his memoirs uh, in one or two places. He, he referred to himself as steering a, a ship. And uh, it seemed to me, uh, for several reasons, an interesting metaphor. Clearly, it suggests somebody who views uh, the state as uh, a vessel of some kind which can be moved in a particular direction and uh, which is led by a single individual. Uh, now, there was another sense in which uh, it seemed to me that Gorbachev's uh, experience as leader of, of the Soviet Union uh, was like a captain uh, uh, steering a ship, and that is that uh, the ocean is uh, often unpredictable. And uh, in, in this case, uh, as I say in the book, uh, the course that he charted led into a hurricane, uh, which uh, he was simply ill-equipped uh, to steer the boat out of. Now, there's also a, 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 a quote that I like very much uh, from a Russian economist who said of Gorbachev that he was like Columbus, uh, that uh, he discovered uh, a new world uh, but he didn't realize uh, what it was. As Columbus thought that he discovered India, Gorbachev thought that he was uh, turning the Soviet Union into a, a kind of humane socialist, uh, more modern socialist uh, society. Uh, but in fact, he was uh, destroying the remnants of communism and opening the door uh, for the development of a, a capitalist uh, and ultimately uh, democratic, imperfect, imperfectly democratic uh, regime. So he, he really didn't uh, understand where he was going, uh, but like Columbus, he discovered something uh, tremendously important. Do you think, and this is something that's it's asked about or reevaluating Gorbachev, do you think he knew where he was going, like he had a, a plan of sorts, or was he just kind of making things up as, as he was going along? Well, uh, reading what he wrote... Uh, and, of course, in retrospect, he tries to give it a more coherent uh, feel. Uh, but even, even taking that into account, reading what he wrote and reading uh, also accounts month by month and day by day, one certainly gets the impression that, uh, uh, that he was improvising. And, and of, of course, who, who would not be uh, improvising and reacting given how much things changed within a very short period of time. So I, I don't think he had a master plan, and the way he talks about it was much more uh, a matter of instinct that something had to change, that things could not continue uh, as they had been, uh, and a sort of uh, moral uh, sense of direction, I think, as, as he saw it, that uh, one had to... Uh, one couldn't use repression uh, in the way that it, it had been used in the past. And at one point, uh, uh, talking to some aides, he said, well, of course, we could uh, use force, uh, but ni uh, hochitsa. It just doesn't feel right. Or I, I just don't feel like it. And, and in your estimation, why did his reforms ultimately fail? Well, uh, There's a a running theme through the book, which uh, uh, I I obviously didn't choose, but sort of was chosen for me by the process of the research, which is that the economy uh, had an enormous influence over how politics developed. And I think the the reason uh, things really fell apart for Gorbachev 
had to do with the economic reforms, uh, well, the economic policies that he, he, he initiated in his first three years, essentially, uh, 1985 to 1988, uh, which started a process of complete disintegration within the planned Soviet economy, but which didn't uh, liberate uh, the forces of uh, a market economy. And uh, so ultimately, I think what, uh, what caused the, Russia, the Soviet population uh, to turn against him decisively in 1990, 1991, uh, was food shortages and extreme uh, shortages of consumer goods, which I think were the result of his, uh, his uh, early economic policies. Now let's move on to Yeltsin, who you call the natural. Uh, why the natural? Uh, well, the natural in the sense of a natural election campaigner. And uh, I, I think that if there's one thing that really uh, characterizes Yeltsin, and it, it, it's clearly not the one thing that would occur to everybody, uh, but to me, uh, the, one, uh, the one thing about Yeltsin which, is, which was most important in determining uh, his course and in causing him to, uh, uh, to, to, to side with democracy, even when it seemed that uh, he, he was uh, facing uh, serious problems, was his intuitive sense uh, that he was a good election campaigner, that he had this ability to connect to ordinary people. And, and in fact, he was uh, extremely good at this. Uh, now, he had to do this in, uh, in conditions which would have challenged uh, the most expert uh, political campaigner from any country, uh, an economy that was that was doing extremely badly, collapsing uh, over the course of many years. But uh, I think uh, at key moments, what really saved Yeltsin from uh, moving in the direction of uh, of more authoritarian government was his belief that ultimately he had this connection to the people that he could. Uh, that he could, uh, if only he got out on the campaign trail and met them, uh, he could make that connection again. Uh, and, and that this was really the, the, the heart of politics uh, and something that he uniquely uh, was situated to do. One of the interesting myths that you dispel um, is the popular narrative that Yeltsin was a tool of the oligarchs. Um, in what ways is this narrative problematic? Right. Uh, well, it's so convenient, isn't it? it, it there, there were so many different groups uh, for which the image of Yeltsin as a, as a puppet of the oligarchs uh, was convenient. Uh, first of all, the oligarchs themselves uh, benefited from this uh, impression of being extremely influential, having Yeltsin's ear. Uh, investment partners uh, took them more seriously and so on. And it also uh, appealed to their vanity. Uh, it was uh, a godsend for the communists uh, who could uh, discredit Yeltsin by saying he is the tool of these, uh, these uh, dishonest capitalists. Uh, I think for, for journalists covering Russia in the 1990s, it was a very convenient uh, sort of shorthand explanation with lots of vivid individuals to, 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 to picture, to profile. Uh, it was a shorthand explanation for why things seemed to be going so badly. And it had this moralistic uh, element, which uh, I think appeals uh, to journalists at times. Um, so there were various, for, for many different groups, uh, this image of Yeltsin as being controlled by oligarchs was very attractive. But if, if one looks closely at the decisions that were made, uh, especially in the period when the oligarchs were supposedly extremely powerful, which is uh, really after uh, 1996, so 1997, 1998, mm -hmm. uh, one finds that uh, on a whole series of issues, they, they didn't, in fact, uh, get what they wanted. Uh, in many small ways, they did. But in, in the big uh, fights that they, they picked, and I'm thinking in particular of, of uh, the oligarch of oligarchs, Berezovsky, uh, he didn't get what he wanted. Uh, uh, and uh, the, the cases in which they did 
uh, get uh, what they were fighting for were relatively few. So I, I think it's a problematic uh, image, uh, and uh, the evidence just isn't uh, isn't really there uh, that, uh, that 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 Russian politics was being controlled by the oligarchs. Now I should say they did have a role. They got. Uh, I, I say in the book that uh, they didn't always get their way, but they got in the way. Uh, they distracted the government, uh, members of the government. They they corrupted uh, various officials. Uh, they uh, endlessly fought among themselves. They used their media uh, outlets to to, uh, to slander each other and uh, to uh, distract uh, from the very difficult tasks of government at that time. So uh, they were part of the scene, but I think their influence uh, was greatly exaggerated. Now, in your chapter on Putin, uh, you, you title it Unreasonable Doubt. And w- what does this phrase say about Putin as a man and a politician? Right. Well, the, the, uh, the framing image that I use in that chapter is of the destruction caused by bombs that were placed in four apartment buildings in 1999. And uh, uh, these bombs were blamed on uh, Chechen terrorists, terrorists from the Caucasus. Uh, There were various aspects of the investigation, and I should say the lack of investigation into into these uh, bombings, uh, that produced doubts in the minds of many people. There was one aspect which was particularly troubling, which was uh, in uh, the city of Vrazan, white powder was found in sacks in the basement of another apartment building. Uh, It was uh, later said to be part of an exercise uh, that had been organized by the KGB to check on local vigilance, and that, in fact, this uh, white powder was sugar. Uh, but many people wondered if they'd been told the whole, sto- the whole story. So uh, it seemed to me that even though the vast majority of Russians did not uh, believe uh, that, uh, obviously, that uh, Putin and uh, the country's leaders uh, were responsible for, for such a terrible thing, uh, there was some lingering doubt which was not dispelled because there was never a convincing uh, public investigation. And I think uh, the Putin era was really characterized by, on the one hand, uh, the booming economy, rising incomes, uh, a feeling of at least economic uh, stability, uh, relative stability. But on the other hand, in the back of people's minds, at least uh, the more politically aware people, this element of doubt uh, which uh, could never quite be dispelled. Mm -hmm. Especially Putin's background in the security police uh, also continues to cast a shadow over him as making him a suspicious figure. Yes, he's he's, uh, naturally implicated in anything that people... Uh, attribute to the uh, security services, to the to the former KGB and the FSB. Um, one uh, a favorite pastime amongst Russia watchers is to try to understand Putin's motivation. Um, what do you think drives the political and policy choices he made as president? Right. Well, in the book, I, I run through a number of possibilities, and and I have to say. Uh, uh, there's no way to, 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 to be sure of this. Uh, this is the part of the book which uh, gets most into speculation. Mm-hmm. You uh, referred to him at one point as opaque, I think. Oh, yes. <laughs> I, I, I find him very opaque. I, I've, uh, I've met him a couple of times in large groups uh, in these settings where people are allowed to ask questions and then he replies. And I found that completely uh, uninformative. Uh, he's very difficult uh, to read, and the many people who claim to have detailed knowledge of what he thinks, uh, I, I don't find very credible. Um, so it comes down to a lot of uh, evaluating the evidence we have, uh, some deduction, and and some simply uh, working out uh, plausible uh, scenarios and hypotheses. 
And so the one that I think fits best, uh, for me at least, uh, is that although obviously there are many sides to him, uh, perhaps the most important side was uh, Putin as uh, the, well, Putin uh, thinking in the terms of uh, major international businessmen, that uh, his real passion was for uh, running Gazprom, the gas monopoly, uh, and that uh, What's most characteristic about his regime, ultimately, uh, is not the KGB side uh, so much as the fact that uh, some of his uh, acquaintances uh, have grown very rich. Uh, and uh, we've seen the uh, – this is, this is now changing a little, but we've seen uh, many of his uh, – well, members of his government and close aides uh, in leading positions in uh, state-owned uh, enterprises uh, on the boards and so on. So uh, I present this image of, of Putin as the, the chief executive officer or, or Putin, the international businessman, and uh, with his uh, goals being uh, fundamentally to... Uh, further the interests of a network of associates in business. Now, that's in some ways consistent with developing the economy. And of course, uh, in his position, he has to be very concerned about uh, his popularity and, uh, and uh, staying in power. Uh, but uh, unlike uh, most products of the uh, Soviet KGB, uh, he seems to be completely uh, comfortable with capitalism, uh, well, with capitalism with a, with a large role for the state, but nevertheless, uh, international capitalism. And uh, this uh, perspective seems to uh, be how he thinks about many problems. You call Dmitry Medvedev the understudy. Um, now, what does this title say about him as a politician and about his anointment as Russia's president? Right. Well, uh, everybody understood from the start that Medvedev was uh, Putin's trusted uh, uh, protege, uh, that uh, he was part of the Putin team, uh, and uh, everybody expected him to be loyal to Putin. Uh, and I think we've we've seen uh, that uh, that actually describes what's happened. Now, I think in addition to the personal loyalty that Medvedev certainly feels towards Putin, uh, who's been his mentor for many many years, uh, I think we need to recognize that uh, the room for maneuver of uh, Medvedev in the current setup is very limited. Uh, on paper, the powers of the Russian president are enormous, uh, but uh, in practice, uh, for Medvedev uh, to do anything uh, in practice, well, to, to, to implement any decision, uh, he needs to go through the government, which is under Prime Minister uh, Putin. If he, need, he wants to pass a law, he needs to get it enacted by the Duma, which is dominated by United Russia, the party led by Putin. And uh, so Medvedev's uh, real uh, levers to, to uh, do something in, in Russia uh, are quite restricted uh, unless Putin agrees. Uh, so uh, Medvedev has never been an independent uh, player in Russian politics, uh, in part uh, because he was chosen to be Putin's uh, Putin's man, but in part because uh, the institutional setup is such uh, that uh, he's uh, quite uh, hemmed in uh, by political constraints. Mm -hmm. And you think some of those also exist outside of, say, Putin's control too, in the sense of uh, the bureaucracy in general and various factions within it, or even factions within his own government, and also uh, in the, out in the regions? Right. I, I think we often exaggerate the ability of somebody sitting in Moscow uh, to cause change in policy uh, throughout the country. Uh, 
in practice, very many decisions are not implemented or not fully implemented. Uh, as, as we know, there's a great deal of corruption within the Russian bureaucracy and beyond corruption, just inefficiency. Uh, so uh, for Medvedev and also I, I would say for Putin, uh, the image of them as all-powerful is, is quite misleading. Uh, they are, of course, the central players in the political game, uh, but uh, the bureaucracy, the state that they have to work with uh, is far from a well-oiled machine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this is a perennial problem going back, you know, since Peter the Great. So the they, the Russian leaders have haven't been able to conquer this successfully. Um, yes. Now, Putin. Once Medvedev becomes president, the, they they form this new type of of rule, which which they refer to as the tandem. Um, and there's always speculation on the relationship between Putin and Medvedev. Is there a split in the tandem? You especially see this in the headlines in the last uh, month or so. Um, what is your assessment of this relationship? And and uh, speculate as to where do you see it's going as as uh, the 2012 elections approach? Sure. Well, so everybody wants to know who's really in, in charge, who's really in control. Is it Putin? Is it... Uh, Medvedev, uh, my view of this is that really it doesn't matter who's, uh, who, who is in charge because they are part of the same team. Uh, they're extremely closely uh, linked. Their, their goals and their interests are, are very closely aligned. Uh, they've known each other for, for about 20 years and worked together for most of that time. Uh, so uh, I, I see... The attempt to see uh, struggles or differences between them uh, as uh, a little bit uh, naive. Uh, now, I, I do think there's a division of labor between them, and this has been the case from the start. So Medvedev's uh, mission has been to appeal to the intellectual elite, uh, the more sophisticated, highly educated pro-Western circles, uh, mostly the younger generation, and predominantly in Moscow and St. Petersburg. Uh, Putin's job uh, has been to appeal to mainstream Russians out in the provinces. Uh, And this means that their messages and their rhetoric have uh, been somewhat different, uh, and occasionally they've even conflicted. Uh, So Medvedev has sounded more modern, more open to liberal ideas. Uh, Putin has come across more down-to-earth, more nationalist, more hesitant about cooperating with the West. And, and we've seen this, I think, uh, throughout uh, the uh, period of the tandem, but the uh, contradictions or the apparent, uh, the apparent uh, differences have uh, become much more salient uh, in recent months. Uh, so what's going on? Uh, I think Medvedev's credibility over the last three years has uh, gotten uh, lower and lower uh, with the, uh, the elites uh, to whom it's his job to appeal. So he has not been able, or perhaps not even been willing, <coughs> excuse me, not been able or willing to, to implement uh, the kind of modernization reforms uh, that he claimed to support. And I think uh, in the last six months or so, we've really seen uh, the, the elites in, in Moscow, St. Petersburg, giving up on him, uh, perhaps uh, once and for all. And so this leaves him in a very awkward situation because uh, his usefulness uh, to Putin, the, the role that he needs to play in the system, is that of, uh, of uh, appealing to these elites uh, as well as to Western uh, circles. And if he's no longer able to do that, if he's lost all credibility, then uh, that changes the calculus for Putin in thinking about what to do in the upcoming election season. So it, it, it uh, increases the uh, incentive for Putin uh, to uh, decide to introduce some new face into the uh, in, into the political constellation, perhaps <clears throat> Putin coming back as president, and uh, a new, uh, more credible reformist as prime minister, or, or perhaps even to have uh, some 
new uh, symbol of liberalism, let's say, uh, running as, as president. Um, and Medvedev understands this and so uh, is trying to uh, renew his credibility, to, to rebuild it uh, with the uh, elites that are his constituency. Uh, and ironically, the best way to do that is by attacking Putin. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think that's, that's what we see to the extent we see anything. And uh, really, we shouldn't exaggerate uh, the, the differences of uh, wording or sort of uh, – they, they seem uh, significant because they're more than we've seen to date. Right. But uh, the, the spokesman later soften the edges and uh, retract in little ways. Uh, so uh, I think that's what we see. Medvedev is trying to, at this point, looking ahead to 2012, he's trying to establish his credibility uh, to convince Putin that he's still a valuable player. Uh, and uh, I think Putin understands that uh, that, that requires him uh, to distinguish himself from Putin and uh, sometimes quite sharply. Now, it's a dangerous game because uh, he could go too far and uh, really uh, irritate Putin, which would not be good for him. Uh, and I doubt, I, I, I doubt uh, that it will actually work. I, my feeling at this point is that uh, Medvedev really can't uh, rebuild his credibility uh, with, with the elites in Moscow. So, but I'm not sure that he has a better uh, strategy available. I'm not sure that there is some other course uh, that would work better. So that's my view of of what's been happening in in the last six months. And I would expect to see more of that as we get closer to the election uh, until uh, Putin and Medvedev make a final decision about who the candidate is going to be. I guess this is what they mean when they say we'll make the decision according to present political conditions um, and what you just elaborated kind of illuminates that phrase to me a little bit more. Yeah, I think, I, I, think, uh, I mean, my, my feeling, and obviously, as, as I said earlier, I, when, I can't read Putin's mind, but uh, my feeling is that, the, that Putin really has not decided yet. Uh, and uh, in fact, it seems to be a character trait that he doesn't like to, de- to, to make decisions until he has to. Uh, so he can be decisive when sort of forced to make a decision, but up to that point, he often delays. And I, it, I think it's quite rational because a lot of uh, of what's going to happen in the next political season, I think, is going to depend on what's going to change in the economy in the coming months. Do you think he also does this because, in a way, it keeps those his subordinates kind of on their toes so they're not picking a side too prematurely and and who will be running for president i mean i'm speaking here there's always speculation about various clans within the government um and one way to kind of keep them you know on their toes is to really not make a decision until the last minute right well well clearly if he would announce that it was not going to be medvedev then it would be very difficult for medvedev uh to, to really remain doing what he's doing. Uh, he would be a completely lame duck. Uh, and uh, that, that could sort of destabilize the system to some extent if everybody started treating him with disrespect or simply ignoring his, his uh, instructions. Uh, I mean, more than, uh, than, than they typically do anyway. Um, so, yeah, I think Putin uh, doesn't want to undermine Medvedev's authority prematurely uh, even if he does plan to, he does decide to to uh, replace Medvedev. Uh, but the, he's also they're also creating some. Uh, well, they're, they're, the the elite, uh, the political elite in Moscow is is uh, is in this state of nervous agitation. Uh, the political technologists, people like uh, Gleb Pavlovsky and all the others. Uh, they feel that they have to make a decision about who they're backing. Uh, and it's a very risky decision. Uh, so uh, there's this, this sense of, uh, of anxiety and, uh, and insecurity in, in Moscow created by this 
this lack of a candidate. Uh, so it's a balance. Uh, I, I think Putin doesn't want to destabilize the government, but on the other hand, he is creating uh, nervousness within the political elite. Right, certainly. Now, let, let's move on to the second half of the book, which deals details some key issues in Russia over the last 20 years, and the first of which is the demise of the Soviet Union as a geopolitical unit. Um, in your view, what caused the breakup of the USSR? Well, I think it was, I, I think to point to any single factor is too simplistic. I think it was really the combination of, of a series of elements. Uh, so the economic crisis uh, that uh, undermined Gorbachev's popularity was important. Uh, the uh, development of ethno-nationalism in the various republics was important. The regional elections in 1990, which... Uh, which, which directed energy uh, into politics at the, at the Republican level uh, rather than at the central level. That was important. Uh, but I think, uh, and then ultimately, uh, the August 91 coup attempt was important because it really uh, undermined Gorbachev's final attempts, which probably would have failed anyway, uh, to move to some sort of loose confederation. And... Uh, it also uh, it conclusively showed the failure of the security services and uh, army uh, to halt the process of disintegration at that point. So I, I think we see uh, over time a whole series of events and a whole series of different factors interacting in a certain way which led to this outcome, which I think as of 1985 was not particularly likely. And one of the things you you rumin, rumin, uh, speak about in the book is the lack of violence that um, the breakup of the USSR um, uh, that there was no violence or in the breakup of the USSR, um, and this is unlike what we saw with the Ottoman Empire or decolonization and the disintegration of Yugoslavia. Uh, why was there no violence in your view? Right. Well, I, I should qualify that a bit because uh, th there was violence uh, and. Uh, estimates differ, but uh, uh, probably somewhere between, I don't know, 40,000 and 100,000 uh, people were killed in the various wars, uh, Nagorno-Karabakh uh, and various other ones. But compared to the disintegration of, of major uh, ethnically mixed uh, states, uh, even compared to Yugoslavia, uh, there was surprisingly little violence. Uh, and so uh, I think Yeltsin deserves a certain amount of credit for this. Uh, in very difficult circumstances, he negotiated, and as, as you know, he's reviled for having signed the Bielowieskie uh, agreement, uh, which brought the Soviet Union to an end, but the process of negotiations that uh, Yeltsin engaged in with Ukraine and Belarus, uh, I think, provided some stability. And Yeltsin's uh, careful attempt to keep you, to, to, to not to threaten Ukraine, uh, eventually signing a friendship treaty with Ukraine in 1997, I think this was very important. Uh, not supporting uh, Russian separatists in the Crimea, that was uh, very important. Uh, so I, I think that was uh, that was part of it, uh, but it, it is still somewhat puzzling and impressive that the Russian ethnically Russian communities, uh, the very large diaspora in some of the other uh, Soviet republics, such as uh, Kazakhstan and then and the Baltics, that these didn't uh, flare up into uh, bloody uh, confrontations. Uh, of course, there was some violence in uh, in Moldova and Pridnestrovia, uh, but by and large, uh, there was relatively little. Uh, and uh, I, I think that's impressive, and, and it remains a bit of a puzzle. Mm -hmm. Now, the economic reforms of the 1990s are probably the most controversial topic among Russian washers. Um, what were some of the challenges in transforming Russia's economy to a, a capitalist system? Wow. Well... <laughs> <laughs> really, really everything. Uh, I mean, we 
<laughs> looking at looking at this period, some people say, "Oh, look, the economy collapsed in the 1990s. Must be because of economic reform." Uh, but what that neglects is the fact that the economy was collapsing before the start of economic reform, uh, and uh, for reasons uh, that uh, had to do with. Uh, First of all, the inefficiency of the Soviet system, and secondly, uh, the disorganization introduced by Gorbachev's uh, reforms. But so the, the challenges were really to create from scratch uh, uh, a market economy uh, to liberate uh, ordinary Russians to trade, uh, to turn what was largely uh, an economy of state ownership uh, with uh, state-owned enterprises uh, into a economy dominated by private uh, enterprises. I think there's one uh, one challenge which uh, I've become more and more conscious of over the years, which I think was really not uh, fully understood at the time. And this was that uh, I would say a, a very large uh, part, a very large uh, fraction of uh, enterprises within Russia uh, inherited from the Soviet Union uh, simply could not be salvaged. Uh, they were, many of them were located in places which were simply not sensible places to have a factory, not sensible places to, to have uh, enterprises, because the Soviet uh, objectives had included uh, populating Siberia uh, and, and had made these lo location decisions uh, unrelated to economic rationality. So there were enterprises uh, in Siberia and the Far East, which were simply more expensive to keep running uh, than it was worth. That, that what they were producing uh, was simply not worth the expense of transporting food to them, uh, trans transporting energy and so on. Uh, and then Many of the inherited enterprises had obsolete capital stock, uh, which simply needed to be scrapped, and were producing goods for which there simply wasn't demand uh, in, in, in a free economy where, where other enterprises and consumers weren't ordered to buy uh, goods from these enterprises. So we had this very large set of enterprises, which, which were really hopeless, which could not be salvaged. But if one were to close them down overnight, it would lead to tens uh, of millions of people unemployed. And so uh, the Yeltsin administration sort of uh, muddled through with this problem uh, and uh, the, uh, many of these enterprises were kept alive with subsidies of one kind or another, uh, even though they were not really producing very much uh, and this was uh, really a social welfare strategy more than more than an economic strategy. Uh, and over the years, gradually, uh, many of these enterprises have been uh, have been closed down. Although some are still uh, some are still there, but I think that was a huge problem, which for which there was no solution. Uh, one simply couldn't move twenty million people uh, to different locations, uh, and the state had uh, had no resources to provide massive retraining, uh, welfare benefits, and so on. Uh, and so it struggled with that, and this, uh, this imposed enormous costs. Um, now let's turn to post-Soviet politics. Um, what are some of the ways we can understand the ebb and the flow in, pol in Russian politics, particularly democracy to authoritarianism um, since 1991? Right. Well, if, if, if we want a simple image for what has happened in democracy in Russia, I think uh, it's two steps forward, one step back. So uh, I would say that there was a very major breakthrough to democracy in the early 90s, uh, probably peaking around uh, 93, 94. Uh, though some would dispute that, that was uh, 93, obviously, was also the time when uh, federal troops fired on the parliament building. Uh, but nevertheless, I would say there was this movement towards uh, decentralization and uh, democracy uh, until the mid-90s, and then a gradual trend uh, back towards recentralization uh, and uh, under Putin, 
uh, a gradual rolling back of democratic freedoms uh, and increase in the way that elections were managed and manipulated. Uh, so big breakthrough from the end of so the Soviet Union and uh, this, this two steps forward, one step back. Uh, so why has this occurred? Well, if, if we look at all the, the uh, post-communist countries, uh, there's a sort of geographic logic to it. Uh, first of all, all of them go through this, this uh, initial jump uh, towards more democratic politics. And then what happens next uh, is uh, quite clearly dependent on their geographical location. So the East European countries, having jumped to democracy, uh, stay high and gradually converge even higher uh, towards the West European countries. Uh, at the other extreme, the Central Asian uh, republics, they make this little jump towards more democracy in 1991, then almost immediately they fall back down again. Right. Uh, Quite low. <laughs> yes, they, they, they become uh, authoritarian states, clearly authoritarian states. Now, in between those, uh, there is uh, the Caucasus and there's uh, what I would call European uh, former uh, Soviet Union or the European CIS, which uh, means Russia, Belarus, Ukraine, and uh, Moldova. And in, in that band, that geographical band, including the Caucasus, there's much more variation, uh, both across the countries and uh, over time. Uh, so we see in Belarus, uh, it starts off very nicely, uh, but then 94, uh, Lukashenko is elected, and then it falls right back down uh, to authoritarian state. Uh, the other extreme, Moldova these days, is rated pretty high uh, when it comes to democracy. And UK, Ukraine and Russia are lower, uh, sort of in between Belarus and, and Moldova. Uh, and you see similar sort of dynamics uh, with Ar in the Caucasus with Armenia, uh, some years being much more democratic, some years less democratic. Uh, and, uh, but all of them averaging somewhere sort of in the middle, uh, at the lower range of democracy or the higher range of, uh, well, relatively soft authoritarian uh, government. So, uh, not to be a geographical determinist, it seems there is some uh, sort of large... What we've seen is, is, uh, is this pattern emerging. Uh, on the other hand, there's perhaps a hopeful sign in that within... Uh, Western Europe, or within Western and Eastern Europe, uh, the Baltics, uh, sorry, not, not the Baltics, the Balkans started out as being on the more authoritarian side, uh, but has converged since the end of uh, the Yugoslav Wars, has converged towards uh, the uh, other East European countries. So democracy has spread uh, south into the Balkans, uh, and it's possible that democracy will continue to spread uh, further east. Uh, but uh, uh, I think we, we, have to, we have to see Russia in context, both geographical and uh, also comparing Russia to countries at a similar level, level of economic development. And at Russia's level of economic development, uh, if, if countries have democracy, it's an imperfect democracy. Yeah, I thought this was a, a, a good analysis that you make. And we often look at Russia in relationship to, say, to Western Europe or the United States, but you actually take the position of comparing it to, say, Latin America and other types of middle uh, income um, uh, political systems or, or countries. Yeah, well, I, I think that's a logical comparison to make. So if we if we look at Russia's uh, GDP per capita, it, it was somewhere in the range of, uh, well, averaging somewhere around uh, 10,000, 12,000 uh, during recent, uh, recent years. Uh, other countries at a similar level of economic development are countries like Turkey, Malaysia, uh, Argentina, Mexico. And uh, I'm struck whenever I read about those countries by how many of the problems they have or problems that in Russia are viewed as uniquely Russian. Uh, imperfect protection of human rights, uh, 
state interference in the media, uh, various kinds of problems with democracy from, uh, from harassment of opposition parties uh, to ballot stuffing, uh, manipulation of the elections themselves. Uh, so it seems to me there, there, uh, there's a syndrome of problems that we see in middle-income countries, uh, which countries, as they develop more, uh, gradually overcome, but which are characteristic of, of not just Russia, but Mexico, Argentina, Turkey, and so on. And, and that if we see Russia uh, in that company, then many of the problems that, that people tend to think are uniquely Russian uh, start to see, seem somewhat different. Yeah, I even think there's a case to be made for comparing United Russia to uh, Mexico's pre, when it was yeah. in power. Um, I think that'd be an interesting comparison. I, I doubt that it'll last 60 years. <laughs> That's true. That, that may be true. <laughs> um, let's, let's move on to, to what has uh, been a continued problem for Russia, if not a, a metaphor for post-Soviet Russia, and that's Chechnya. Um, in what ways has the war in Chechnya shaped uh, post-Soviet Russia? The, the problem of Chechnya has really metamorphosed over the years. Uh, it, it started out in the early 90s, before the First War, as a security problem for Russia. Uh, I mean, it was viewed as a problem of, of the Chechens uh, demanding independence, and it was that to some extent. Uh, but in part, it was a problem, uh, I argue in the book, associated with the Chechen leader, uh, General Jokhod Dudayev, and his inability or his unwillingness uh, to provide basic security to prevent terrorist attacks across the border. Uh, okay, so at, at that point, to some extent, it was a, a, a case of a national minority uh, which had been uh, discriminated against terribly uh, during the Soviet period, demanding independence uh, within uh, its territorial unit. Um, then came the war, and then came the interim between the two wars and the second war. Uh, and what started out as perhaps this, this nationalist uprising really changed to uh, a more, uh, well, uh, the, the, the element of uh, Islamic fundamentalism uh, increased, and it became less about uh, Chechen independence and more about, uh, on the one hand, uh, individual warlords and their way of life operating within a chaotic setting uh, through violence, and on the other hand, uh, Islam, to the extent that there was a coherent uh, organizing element. Um, and at this point, uh, many years later, uh, the problem, I think, is metaphor metamorphosed uh, completely into one of uh, guerrillas uh, organized around a, an Islamic fundamentalist insurgency, uh, but who are also uh, motivated uh, by grievances against uh, 20 years of, of abuse by the Russian Federal Security Services uh, and the army. Uh, so it's not exactly an independent struggle at this point. Uh, in fact, I, I, I wouldn't say it's at all an independent struggle, uh, but it's a, it's a very violent uh, insurgency which has spread uh, from Chechnya to uh, Dagestan, especially um, in Gushetia and Kabardino-Balkaria, and uh, could even spread further. Uh, so it, it's, it, it's a problem which has mutated uh, which is just about impossible to imagine solving at this point. Uh, clearly, there are policies that would be better than the current uh, policies uh, of, of the Russian government, but it's not easy to see any real solution. Um, and it's a problem which now is made worse by the fact that a whole generation uh, of uh, Chechen young people uh, have, have grown up uh, basically without education, uh, uh, in conditions uh, of civil war, essentially, uh, and with deep resentment for the Russian forces, the security services, and no real uh, sense of commitment uh, to anything other than 
uh, perhaps very small units, very small groups. Um, now, U.S.-Russia relations have rotated between warm to cold in the last 20 years, and now with the so-called reset, they, they promise to warm again. At least that's the order of the day. Um, what issues and events have shaped U.S. relations over the last 20 years, and, and how do they complicate the efforts to reset them? Well, that, that's a, a very uh, broad question. I think there's, in the book, to try to understand the relations between the U.S. and Russia, uh, I deliberately break it down, and I sketch out the view uh, as perceived by, I think, many people in Moscow, in Russia, on the one hand, and also the view uh, as perceived by uh, Russia hands in, in Washington. Uh, and I argue that there's really uh, very little overlap between the two and that this, this has been a problem, that the same events are perceived in quite different ways. Uh, so uh, I think in the 1990s, the Russian feeling was that uh, their attempts to integrate into the West, uh, their uh, requests for help, uh, their requests for, for being included – uh, were really uh, ignored or rebuffed, and uh, instead what they got was NATO expansion, the expansion of a historically hostile military alliance right up to, to Russia's borders. Uh, in the 2000s, I think Putin came, came into office hoping for an improvement in relations with the U.S. Uh, and uh, felt gradually uh, more and more disillusioned. Uh, feeling that the U.S. was simply not willing uh, to, to cooperate with Russia. Uh, from the American side, uh, obviously there are very, uh, very many other uh, aspects. Um, but I think looking at the relationship at present, uh, the most important fact is that the overlap in interests between Russia and the U.S. today is not very large. Uh, that that one has to be realistic about that and to uh, exploit the areas of, of shared interests uh, that exist. But we need to recognize that uh, today the Russians really don't need uh, American help uh, for very much. Uh, there, there is one issue which uh, I think would be beneficial, uh, which I think will eventually happen, which is Russia's uh, uh, membership in the World Trade Organization. Right. Um, but – and I think that's become increasingly important uh, for Russia in the last couple of years. But by and large, uh, there aren't very many things that the U.S. Uh, could offer to do for Russia at the moment. On the other hand, there are a lot of things, uh, a lot of areas in which Russia, uh, the U.S. could really benefit from, from Russian help, uh, which follows from the fact that the U.S. has global interests, global responsibilities at the moment, uh, and uh, Russia is involved in many of these issue areas, such as uh, energy security, uh, nuclear nonproliferation, uh, dealing with Iran and, uh, and North Korea, and so on. Mm -hmm. And it seems that Russia, too, in, in terms of its foreign relations, is increasingly looking to China on the one hand and Europe on the other. So they're more situated yes. in this geopolitical um, uh, being bordered by these two great powers uh, on their on their eastern and western borders. Right. Yeah, I, I think the the main, the most important issue for uh, the Russian leadership uh, is economics, uh, is uh, maintaining high economic growth, uh, prosperity within Russia. And uh, the most important parts of the world uh, in, in that regard are China and uh, Europe. The U.S. Uh, economic relationship with Russia is extremely uh, minor at this point. Uh, the level of trade is, is very low. Uh, the level of uh, American investment in Russia is also uh, extremely low uh, compared to, to other countries. So the, the real uh, opportunities for Russia are closer partnership with the European Union uh, and uh, in the medium term, uh, closer trade relations, uh, growing trade relations with, with China. Now, the overarching thesis of your book is that Russia has returned to the global stage. Um, but 
what is this Russia that's returned, and and how should we understand it in the present, and and perhaps where it's going in the future? Right. Well, that's the question that 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 I really try to try to answer for myself uh, in the course of this book, and uh, I think the first thing to recognize is that it's a middle-income country that uh, with all that that entails uh, it, it's a country which has grown a lot in the last 10 years but it's still uh, relatively uh, relatively poor about on the level with with Argentina uh, and uh, and uh, Mexico uh, so it's a country that is bound to have imperfect political institutions, to have uh, economic problems, uh, economic instability of various kinds. Uh, so th that's, that's part of it. it politically, it's uh, at this point uh, a kind of soft authoritarian regime, but a very strange one in that, uh, in that although the elections have been heavily manipulated uh, in recent years, nevertheless, Credible opinion polls suggest that the, the rulers, the incumbent rulers, Putin and Medvedev, are genuinely uh, extremely popular. Uh, the ratings have been falling in the last few months, but still, uh, Putin is at 69% approval and Medvedev at 66% approval. Uh, and this is uh, credible polls from the organization, the Levada Center, which has uh, a great reputation for independence uh, and professionalism. So it's an authoritarian regime, but one in which uh, elections are held, they're manipulated, but even if they were run, but if they were run completely honestly, uh, the current incumbents would probably win. Uh, now that, that might change uh, in the future. So uh, at present in Moscow, people are starting to, uh, to wonder whether uh, the model is unraveling uh, the ratings have been falling, and if they were to fall more, uh, we might end up in a situation where we would have elections that were manipulated in which uh, it wouldn't be clear whether uh, the, the result had been uh, determined by the manipulation rather than, by, rather than reflecting what the population actually wanted. And, and that would be quite a different situation. And, I, it's really impossible to tell whether Putin and Medvedev would be able to, to operate uh, under those circumstances. Um, so it's, it's this complicated sort of contradictory uh, soft authoritarian government which may uh, be weakening, may be on the way out. Uh, and it's, I would say, finally, it's a country which is integrating with the world. This is the, the return that I talk about. Uh, but in particular, uh, Russian, Russian society has been integrating with Europe. Uh, Russians have been studying abroad. The, the number of Russians uh, studying abroad doubled in the last 10 years. Uh, Russians have been traveling abroad. So 22 million Russians took trips in 2009, last year for which we have statistics, took trips beyond the former Soviet Union. And uh, more and more... Uh, Russians, especially the middle class, uh, are becoming part of international networks, uh, developing cultural ties, and in various other ways, becoming more integrated into the world. Uh, so it's no longer a, a country that is isolated or that can be thought of as cut off uh, and different. It's really part uh, of, of the new world uh, with its uh, unattractive political institutions and its complicated economic uh, situation. Uh, but uh, so it's, it's a country which is changing and which will continue to change and will probably continue to surprise us, uh, but which we should see in the context of its neighbors and in the context of other middle-income countries. Well, it's a, it's a great book. I, it was incredibly informative, and, and it's one of the least ideological books. If In fact, it, there's very little 
polemicism in the book, which I really appreciate because most books on post-Soviet Russia tend to be quite polemicist. So I really, really appreciate that. Um, just to wrap up the interview, since we've taken a lot of your time, uh, what are you working on now? Well, uh, I'm taking a little break from from uh, major Russia projects, though I'm, I'm keeping track of what's going on with the elections approaching and so on. Lately, I've been working on uh, something quite different, which is on uh, what I call the geography of fear. Hmm. I've been using survey data from various surveys uh, to look at uh, in which countries people are more afraid of various dangers. Hmm, interesting. So there are surveys ask about things like uh, fear of nuclear war, fear of epidemics, fear of uh, genetically modified food, uh, even fear of putting on weight. And uh, so, so I've been trying to analyze uh, the levels of fear in different countries. And for one thing, it turns out that, that these are highly correlated. So in countries where people are afraid of one thing, they're afraid of all the others too. And other countries, they're not afraid of most things. Uh, and so I've been uh, drawing maps and trying to figure out why some countries uh, are more afraid and others less afraid. Hmm, that's interesting considering how prevalent the uh, rhetoric of fear is, at least in American politics. It's it's pretty pervasive. Um, less so now, but certainly five years ago it was quite high. Um, right. Well, it's yeah, it's clearly a, a, a very uh, – it's an element of politics as well as uh, pure psychology. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you very much. Uh, it was a great interview and very, very informative. Um, thank so you. thanks. Thank you. I've been speaking with Daniel Treisman about his book, The Return, Russia's Journey from Gorbachev to Medvedev. I hope you enjoyed the interview. Once again, I'm Sean Guillory, your host for New Books in Russia and Eurasian Studies. If you're interested in hearing more interviews by the New Books Network, please go to newbooksnetwork.com. And be sure to tune in next time when I talk to Louis Siegelbaum about his book, Cars for Comrades, The Life of the Soviet Audio- Automobile. Until then, goodbye. <laughs> 